Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 409 with Tony Co of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode. Hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. Today's guest, Tony, is a first-generation immigrant who came here from Korea at the age of 13, not speaking a word of English. She built the global brand NYX Cosmetics from the ground up when she was only 25 and generated $4 million in retail sales in her first year. She then went on to sell NYX to L'Oreal in 2014 for reported $500 million, which at the time was one of the biggest beauty acquisitions in history. Today, she's here to talk to us about how to build incredible products, what it's like to sell your company, and the journey in between and after. Please welcome to the podcast, Tony Ko. The first question that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Oh, um, so when I first started my company, I was uh, 25 going on 26. Uh, it was a long, long time ago, <laughs> age of the dinosaurs. Um, but it was 19, 1998 going, going on 1999. And uh, I was working in the family business for a very long time. Um, and I decided to leave the family business and start something on my own. And uh Actually, in between that, I was actually going to get a job. And then I realized that I'm very stubborn and I don't like to take orders and I don't like the box to nine to five style. Um, and I 
would probably make a horrible employee and probably get fired in three days. <laughs> so um, I had to become an entrepreneur. I had no other option but to become an entrepreneur. Okay. And what did those early stages look like, like bringing the company to life? Um, you, you did, did you have a background in, in cosmetics? or? Uh, well, I have my background as being a consumer the ultimate consumer, probably. Um, but I worked in the family business, like I said earlier, and our family business was in beauty supply, uh, perfumes and cosmetics. So we started as a retailer and then uh, we moved on to become a distributor wholesaler. Um, so I had that experience, but you know, I'm not like, I'm not your uh, HBS, like formally trained uh, business person, but I could say that um, I'm a third generation entrepreneur in my family. Um, and uh, so my grandfather was an entrepreneur. He was in textile business. My, my father was an entrepreneur. My mom's an entrepreneur. So I just grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. And I spent a lot of time growing up with my, um, spent, like growing up, I spent a lot of time uh, with my grandfather was an amazing business person actually and i think it just like this entrepreneurial spirit rubbed off on me and i learned so much from being around my grandfather and my dad and my mom my mom's an amazing businesswoman um i learned so much from her um yeah so that's how i got my first start at uh 25 26 23 years ago and back in 1999 a young female just did not start a business. Um, these days, it's very common to see a lot of young entrepreneurs or female entrepreneurs or young female entrepreneurs, but this was very rare in 1999. Um, but just like you don't know what you don't know, I've always seen my mother as an entrepreneur. She always worked um, and it was just very natural to me. Yeah, I see. So, can you take us back as well? Um, so when you immigrated to America, you were 13. Uh, like what, what was on your vision board at that time? Like what did the future look like for younger Tony? Oh, like at 13. Oh my goodness. At 13. So innocent. <laughs> so I, I was born and raised in Korea until I was 13 years old. And, and this is 1986. I'm talking about a long time ago. And uh, back then in South Korea, there was no such a thing as a sex ad or like anything like that. So I was 13. And I was so innocent. Like now I look back when I was 13 and like looking at the kids who are 13 these days and I can't believe what they know now. And I can't believe what I didn't know back then. Um, but uh, vision board, wow. Um, at 13, all I wanted to do was go to Disneyland. <laughs> that was my vision board. <laughs> so do you think that you had, because of your family and, and the generational uh, experiences as entrepreneurs, uh, do, what, what, do you think that you were born to, to be an entrepreneur? And, and yeah, I'd love to hear, do you think people are born to be entrepreneurs? Yeah, you know, of course, there's the um, entrepreneurs by training later on the year. But I think uh, like being an entrepreneur is kind of a talent, like hidden born talent as well. Because at first, first of all, you know, you have to have a personality that is okay taking a lot of risk and without any reward. 
for a very long time because just because you start a business doesn't mean that you're going to turn profit immediately. So you get yourself into this situation where you're working 80, 90, 100, 120 hours. Like you hear about these stories, right? And uh, you put your capital in uh, while you're not uh, producing any income. It may be all investment in the beginning and you have to wake up every day and be okay with it. So there's that personality. I think there's that inherent personality quality to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I happen to be an eternal optimist. Um, I just, and I come up with business ideas all the time. Like I walk around on the street and I start like just pulling ideas out of my head. It's like, oh my God, like this would do great. Like just in a conversation or like, I don't know, just like random everyday everything. I am a very solution driven person. So if I'm eating something and I don't like how a salt shaker shakes or like, like just, I try to fix every little thing. And then like, everything is like, Oh my God, it's like, I just go into like this mode of, Oh my God. Like if somebody launched this, it's going to be do amazing. Like I'm just born an optimist. I, it's very hard for me to look for reasons not to, or look for reasons why it cannot work. Uh, maybe it's a quality that I lack that benefited me, but everything I look at, I, I tend to just jump immediately into why it's going to work instead of why it's not going to work. I love it. So um, when you first started, Nix, you guys made $4 million in your first year, uh, which is pretty impressive like what was the initial offering and how did you kind of get that kind of traction so quickly yeah um that was four million in retail value um so that was net a wholesale revenue of two million dollars uh 1999 i was 26 years old and i was a the first year i started the business i was i made myself a self-made a millionaire that's crazy but but I, I was a one woman company. Um, it was me, myself, and I, I say I had three employees, me, myself, and I, three of us did everything. And, uh, I had a small showroom in downtown Los Angeles. It was 600 square feet. I think my rent was $1,200 or something. It was inside California Mart. Um, and then I was renting without paying rent, uh, a little bit of a warehouse space um, at my mom's business that was on the second floor, walk up, no elevator. And these boxes were 38 pounds each. I would never forget. And I was in my mid twenties and I, I like, I, I love makeup. I love fashion. I love beauty. So I used to wear high heels almost every day. I still do almost every day. Um, and I used to carry these 38 pound boxes up and down, and up and down, and up and down the stair all day long. Um, and uh, I was the receptionist, the secretary, the president, the designer, accounting person, um, customer service I did everything myself and uh, uh, now I look back actually it was like one of the best 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 years of my life I had so much fun yeah it's a little bit like that I I hear that kind of common thread people love the early days looking back where you don't have a care in the world you don't have your team members to worry about less responsibility it's scary at the time but you're just kind of having fun and being free 
Oh, absolutely. And you know, um, another thing is, it's like, you have nothing to lose. And that just frees you from so much pressure and the responsibility that you have to have, right? Because, um, so I've exited out of NYX Cosmetic. That was my first company um, in 2014. So I uh, ran the company for 15 years. And during the 15 years, it became from like that, like three employees, me, myself, and I, to being 250 employees at the end. Um, and the thing is like, when it was just myself, every decision that I made only affected me. Like it's not going to hurt anybody if anything goes wrong. So, you know, there's that, that like I, I did not have that pressure. Um, but when you have 200, like two, three, 400 employees, um, sometimes like you're supporting not the two, three, 400 employees, but their extended family members. Um, you know, the salary that they take may pay for their children's college tuition, but put food on the table. So when you have all these variables that goes into your decision-making, the pressure, this is why like the pressure cooker, um, all entrepreneurs are under constant pressure cooker. That's guaranteed. Mm, yeah. So, Let's go back. I'd love to kind of still explore those early days. So what, what products did you launch with to, to make yet yeah, like uh, $2 million in sales in one year? Very simple. Cosmetic pencils, lip liners and eyeliners. That's all I had. Um, I had in the lip liner, I had 12 colors. In the eyeliner, I had six colors. So combined, it was 18 SKUs of product, but basically one item because they're cosmetic pencils. And uh, I was wholesaling that at 55 cents a piece. So when you do the number, I sold close to 2 million pieces of these cosmetic pencil the first year I had launched. And the reason and like and people go like about how how like how like it doesn't make sense but because um it was revolutionary at the time the product that i was offering not revolutionary in a way where the formula was like nothing uh, nothing like it was out in the market that's not true there have been other uh formulas like great formula like the one that i had um and there have been uh, lip liner eyeliner categories that are in the price point that I was in it's just that until I had started NYX Cosmetics no one had married or merged the affordable pricing with the stylish packaging of a department store product it was as simple as that so uh, when you went to like think about Chanel Simplest packaging ever. It's black and it's got a white logo. That's it. Right? And that's how it was in the department store. And then when you went to the lower tier budget line cosmetics, it it was really gaudy. Like, you know, it was really gaudy. Um, Hot pink, green, gold foil, like silver foil and like logos that are like out like out of proportion size logos and i just did not i i wanted my product to look like department store products simple chic and elegant but sell it at a price that was at the mass market price point and once i did that these products like literally flew off the shelf i have 
uh, stories from like a, a retail, like one store uh, customer who are selling 60 pieces of these pencils each day. Yeah, it was, it was, it was revolutionary. Um, so one thing that it had done because the products were selling by itself, because it looked expensive, the quality was really good, and then price was really cheap. I, that's the best combination for any business, right? Value. When you sell great product at a great price, like you're golden, right? And that was what's going on. And uh, so these products were selling so fast and so well. One thing I had never had to do was I had to, like, I didn't really have to sell. Like I went to trade shows and I did a lot of uh, uh, booth, booth exhibitions, but it was more so the customers were coming, like looking for me and coming to me instead of me going to have to go to, a, a, a store and open an account or something like that. And I'm so glad because I am good at a lot of things, but one thing I'm really not good at is sales. Yeah. I'm not a sales driven, uh, uh, business owner or founder or CEO or like whatever you may call it. Yeah. I see. So what, what were some of the early challenges or biggest early challenges? Like, cause or was it just all flying? You know, like as ridiculous as it sounds, I really did not have a lot of challenges because the products were selling so well. I mean, I did have a little bit of a capital strain in the beginning because um, I had to pay my suppliers upfront cash, but I was giving credit to my customers. So between paying my suppliers upfront and then, uh, uh, issuing credits to my customer and collecting. So there was a, that little bit of a cash strain, but besides that, um, oh, um, I had to move very frequently. Uh, that was really stressful because we were, but on a, on a good stressful, uh, because we're growing so fast, we had to move like every, every 18 to, uh, to two years for the first four, five, four moves, I think. And then ultimately I said, like, I don't want to do it. Any like I can't move around anymore. So I ended up buying a warehouse, uh, a really large warehouse. Um, and uh, I actually stayed at that location until the exit of my company. But besides that, I, I mean, hard work, <laughs> but I mean, that's part of, that's a, that's a package deal. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are a business owner, like that is given. So I wouldn't even put that under, under stress. Yeah. So I'd love to explore something that you said before, which is very interesting to me. I've never heard this before. You said you're not a sales person. You don't, you, you're not very good at sales. You're not a sales driven entrepreneur. Can we go a bit deeper there? Because really like sales cures all right like and and so yeah let, let's talk about that a bit more yeah so uh, when you look at a lot of entrepreneurs you will see that a lot of the entrepreneurs are actually very sales-driven um, uh, business owners or entrepreneurs um, I'm a creative person so my specialty is in uh, product design, product packaging, formulation, uh, marketing. Um, that's my specialty. And uh, I cannot for the life of me go to somebody and say, will you buy this? I don't know. I just can't. I just can't. Um, but I think what it is is that I, uh, it, what it is is like for 
a person to become successful and run a successful company, number one important thing is to figure out what you are good at and what you're not good at. And a lot of the times, uh, a lot of the founding entrepreneurs want to do everything. And of course, in the beginning, you do have to do everything. But you know, as the company grows, the most important is to like really figure out uh, okay, like my talent, this is what I'm really good at. This is not what I'm not good at. And hire the right people to take over the jobs that you're not really good at. And it's a, it's an, it's a uh, admission. Like it's a, it's a, um, it's an acceptance that you have to give yourself. Like, some people don't like the acceptance that they're not good at a certain job job categories, but you have to accept it and say and you have to be able to accept it and you have to be able to let it go so you can find the right people to fill those positions for you. So it sounds like very quickly or even when you first started, you had that self-awareness. You knew like even starting that you weren't going to yet like you were just going to focus on product and marketing and yeah, packaging and. I, I did the, I did sales as well in the beginning, of course, because it was just one like myself. And I think this is where um, the luck factor comes in. Like, so I do think sometimes, like, what if I had started a company and the products were not flying off the shelf immediately, and I had to go and sell these products? Me being not a not an amazing salesperson, maybe it would have taken longer for the brand brand to establish, or maybe the brand may not have. Taken Taken off the way it did, but these are the luck factors, right? So, uh, luckily, the products that I that I I was selling were good enough for the products to fly off the shelf. Thus, I did not have to do a job that I was not good at. I really appreciate your openness and honesty. So, um, the products were flying off the shelf. Uh, like, how did you know? when to expand the range and what did that scaling piece look like? Oh, um, I think the first two years, we, we kept it very simple. Um, I launched a second product category probably about two years later and then a third category about three years into the business and uh, uh, from that point on we're just like constant role of launching new products and then of course the company was growing so fast uh, we're growing double digits every year and like my team was growing and everything after that was like the first three years I call first three years um, the what do they call it? Uh, the infant mortality years in like the um, investment world, I guess. So it's the first three years, whether you make it or you don't make it. A lot of companies that go under, go under within three years. A lot of the company, majority of the companies that make it past three years uh, end up being a stable company brand. Um, and then they really start expanding and growing. There's like a growth spur like at a three-year mark. Um, yeah, so after three years, like we started growing like really fast and um, it was, I really saw the growth spur in, in three-year mark. Um, another one came at like a five-year mark. Another one came at like a seven-year mark. Like there are like, like, there's like these like, like, like every couple of, couple of years, I would see a huge, 
huge skyrocketing of revenue growth. And it was pretty steady. It was like every couple of years. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. If you fast forward to now, 2022, you know, there's a lot of brands out there, so many products. Um, what, what are the biggest mistakes that you see new brands making from all your experience? Um, my God, it is, uh, especially in my industry, we are very highly oversaturated, but even, even, with the saturations, the brands that do really well do really well. Brands that don't do well don't do well. Um, but some of the mistakes I see is um, too much expense. And this is because um, I'm a classical uh, entrepreneur, so to speak. I'm more about... Um, like live within your means kind of an entrepreneur um so i see um other brands growing at a such a rapid pace without while sacrificing the profitability of the company and the thing is sometimes it works and then a lot of the unicorn companies that we see have become unicorns with that method. But to every one unicorn we see, there are 10 failures that we never hear about. So it's, I think it's a very risky move. Mm. So talk to us about the exit to L'Oreal and the sale. That was 2014. What was that process like? Um, how did you know it was the right fit? You know, you gave up your baby. Talk, talk to us about that. <laughs> um, well, I was ready. It was my, uh, it was 2014. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. it's been eight years already. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it was 2014. So in 2009, I had brought on a um, minority investors and I raised capital for a growth capital. Uh, but um, you know, the company was, my company was doing really well and we're financially com like completely stable uh, because of my, my method of uh, living within the, the, the means and uh, not overspending. Um, I took the slower, path, like slower growth path. Uh, path. Um, 
so we were financially okay, but the reason I brought in an investor is because I needed the, the uh, smart money. Um, I wanted to get into like these large national retail accounts and I was kind of like hitting a roadblock. Um, I just didn't know how to uh, get into, in front of the buyers and um, really expand distribution nationwide. And so I wanted to partner with an investor who, who, who had that experience. And so my, I found an investor who had just gotten out of a hair care industry in the same retail account that I wanted to get into. So, so I sold 20% of my company to uh, these investors. And when the investors come into your company, they all have a timeline. Um, and at short end, really short is three year to really long is 10 years, but then the average is five to seven years exit for them, right? So in 2009, when I brought, it, brought on an investor, it was at that moment, the fate had been decided almost that there was going to be an exit of this company in the next five to seven years. And 2014, uh, 20, uh, it was the winter of 2013, um, uh, the, I, the, we started talking about the idea of possibly exiting the company and we started to um, uh, interview bank investment bankers to represent our company and I think the whole process took about eight to nine months um, from the beginning to the to the to the final completion and it was really difficult uh, oh my gosh but that eight nine month that we spent oh my god what like it's that acceleration that you get I mean the the highs and the lows and um, it is such an adrenaline-driven, um, yeah, I mean, I had the best time, and it was such an amazing experience in the education, educational period for me, too. I learned so much during that time, and uh, uh, we finally consummated the deal in July 30 of 2014, and uh, actually, and what happened was, like, um, I got paid on July 30 of 2014. And, you know, like most people think that like we would go out and like pop champagne and party all night, but it was nothing like that. I opened my computer that morning. I went in, so I was still going into office every day. Um, and uh, that morning I went into my office, opened my computer, and then got a call from my attorney to check my bank accounts. So I go along on and I counted all the zeros and I'm like, okay it's done like okay like like it's really like it's really sold it's not mine anymore and before you sell the company um uh, about 30 like about like 30 days before they ask you that they asked me to make a list of all the items that i wanted to keep personally um so uh, like my desk. So this desk right here, uh, it's been refurbished several times along the way, but this desk is, is uh, um, from 1999, actually. This desk is a 23-year-old desk that I have, that I have moved around with me. I probably like it's been into like 10, 12 different offices with me. Uh, I, I will never get rid of this desk. I will retire uh, with this desk. And uh, yeah, so it was my desk, my chair. Like, you know, you make a list. And of course, like you can't, I can't take the desk with me. Uh, I had to hire a mover to come and take the desk. But I literally walked out with, you know, those, what, those mailer box? Like those? 
like UPS, like UPS mailer box. I walked out of my office with like that one mailer box and I just said bye to my team and I walked out the door, got in my car, came home and it was really surreal because I'm just like, they're like, this is it? 15 years of my life and some zeros in my bank account and a box of files. That's all I had. And uh, I actually crashed and I went to sleep. Cause you have like, cause you're coming off of such a high. Um, I passed out and I think I slept for like 12, 13, 14 hour nonstop. I just slept the full time. And the next morning I got up and I actually jumped in shower and started shampooing my hair. Got, oh my God, I'm late. Da, da, da. And like in the middle of shampooing my hair, I just went, holy smokes. Like I don't have a work to go to. <laughs> wow so was it was it a time of like kind of did you feel lost after that or very 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 I got so depressed oh my gosh um it's something that it's you know it is a subject that not a lot of uh entrepreneurs or business world did not talk about but this is actually very common especially amongst uh founding partners uh that a lot of people like me after an exit actually go through an existential crisis because we've buried like our identity, like our everything, life's purpose, mission, your identity, like your hours, like you, like, like you baked yourself into the companies that you build and once that gets removed and you like and then you go wait a minute who am i like that's the first question right it starts with who am i and then why am i here um what's my like what's my what like what's my next purpose like um and suddenly you have all these hours because you're so used to working all the time uh, and you have like all these like leisurely hours and you don't know what to do with the time. Like I literally did not know what to do with my time. Um, yeah. So, and I actually fell into a deep, deep, deep depression. And uh, it was, it was to a point where um, it was, cl- I was clinically depressed um, and I was going to see a therapist, nothing worked. Um, and so to save myself, I started on the company. <laughs> wow. And, and that really, that's what worked, just starting something else. I wouldn't say it, it really, like it worked. It's that there's no, there's no magic wand that you could just, just wave around and, you know, have all your, your crisis go away. It doesn't work that way, but you know, it's a, it's, it takes your focus off one thing and then you could put your focus in something else. And I think I'm a very different case too, because majority of people, um, um, they would have families, right? So, uh, and the majority of people have, um, families and children. So a lot of people's focus can be uh, reshifted to family life, the, you know, spending more time with their children. Um, but I did not have that luxury. So um, yeah, I was, I was really, I felt very lonely as well. That was 
that was that was huge like feeling lonely yeah i see oh look thank you for sharing and, and being so vulnerable um so was your next business that you started bespoke beauty brands and no 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 no, no. Uh, this, this is my this is my third company um so i had a sunglass company in between that i had for about three three and a half years oh and what happened there complete failure <laughs> utter failure i had never experienced anything like that in my life um lost a lot of money but it was probably the best thing that had happened to me because it was it was truly experiencing my ego death and i'm very grateful like i would pay like I, if i had to do it again i would actually do it again so I could learn from that mistake because because what I learned from the mistake has has taught me so much. So I am able to start my third business, apply the learnings that I had, and make this company a success. I see. So can you tell us, um, you know, how did you start Bespoke Beauty Brands? Um, Bespoke Beauty Brands, this one is, uh, started this, so um, after I, I've exited to L'Oreal, um, I had a five years non-compete. Um, and within those five years, it was, it was really, really um, a, a, a strict non-compete. So I wasn't able to invest, advise, um, uh, sit on board, um, or anything in the beauty space, which included color cosmetics, skincare, and nail care. Um, so I wasn't able to, like, I was completely locked out of the beauty business. Um, but uh, time time passes, time, like, it doesn't, like, time solves everything. So five years had passed, July 30, 2019, my non-compete expired. So I started a new company on August the 1, 2019. <laughs> I took, I gave it a 24 hour window, <laughs> um, but I, I launched this company in um, uh, August of 2019 and uh, launched the first brand on October 18th of 2019. Little did I know that we were going to go into a COVID lockdown. <laughs> Life. Life, you never know what she's going to throw at you. And, and what was the idea behind the brand? Can you go? I'd love to know a little more. Yeah, yeah. So um, over the five years, I've seen, um, I've, seen, I've seen the market shift. I've seen the consumer's consciousness shift, consumer behavior. Um, this new generation of consumers, they're so brilliant and they're so smart. Um, and they're very unique and they're, they like things that are very unique to themselves as well. So for instance, like my last company, like our thing was, we have something for everybody. We have 1,800 SKU and it was, Hey, uh, uh, are you a, uh, are you a, a punk rock star? Here's a product for you. Are you a 65 year old? Um, uh, here's a product for you. Are you a 18 year old college kid? Here's a product for you. Like we had something for everybody. Like that was our thing. Um, but what I started to see was a uh, concept like that wasn't as popular as 
as it used to be. Like people wanted something that is very, um, uh, that spoke directly to them, brand narrative, like that authentic brand narrative was so important. So what I decided to do was um, I wanted to partner with different celebrities, uh, influencers, and launch a beauty products for the influencers and the celebrities and in a very specifically targeted demographic um, consumer base and just focus on that only. So the first brand that we launched is called Kimchi Chic Beauty. So she is a Korean American drag queen, RuPaul's Drag Race season eight, has two million follow about two million followers followers on Instagram, hugely popular, like very adorable, loved by everybody, no controversy, nothing. Everybody loves kimchi, this sweet, like sweet, 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 amazing uh, drag queen. And so we're doing this brand and it's very specific. Like our colors are 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 pink and yellow and green and mint and um it's very colorful it's loud um some of our our um item names can be a little obnoxious some people kind of like e i don't know like so we have uh the the eyeshadow palette that we had launched with was the name of the palette is uh, is uh, uh rainbow shards and at first everybody's like are you sure like you want to call an eyeshadow palette shards i'm like yeah <laughs> let's do it like if we're gonna do if we're gonna use shards on any of the packaging or product like this is it like uh, so it's very specific it's like and we have uh, currently, we have close to 300,000 followers on our own brand Instagram page, and uh, we're already doing um, multi-million dollars. We just rolled out to 200 CVS stores. Um, we have amazing sales meeting lined up with, uh, I can't say the name right now, but a lot of the other uh, national chain retail accounts as well. Um, it's doing really well. And so the second brand that we launched was with Jason Wu. He's a fashion designer. Um, and so when you look at the two brands, so Jason Wu, we rolled it out with Target. So we're uh, we're in, uh, currently we're in um, close to 700 Target stores right now. Um, and when you look at these two brands, it's so distinctively different, the look and feel, the color, the color scheme um, that each brand, does not cross over. The consumer who buys kimchi chic is not Jason Wu's consumer. The consumer who buys Jason Wu product is not kimchi chic's consumer. So what we do is we we launch a smaller, more boutique brands that's very specifically has brand narrative to the audience that we want to target. Yeah, makes sense. That's really smart. So I'd love to tackle a little more on influencer marketing because it sounds like um, the strategy is is you're finding influencers, partnering with them and creating, basically you're operationalizing and commercializing um, their brand, uh, their personal brand. So for any new brand, um, you know, how important is influencer marketing in 2022? So I have a lot of mixed thoughts about this too, mixed thoughts, mixed emotions. Uh, um, so here's the thing. The reality is, it is not as effective 
as it used to be three, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Definitely not. Does it still carry some weight? Yes, it does. You can start a new company, launch something, and then open a Instagram account and you start with zero followers, or you can partner with someone who has millions of followers. And because of their platform of having millions of followers already, when you launch your the, the brand and then launch an Instagram account, you will at least, at least minimum start 10, 20, 30,000 followers. So with Kimchi, the day we launched, we gained 60,000 followers. Um, with Jason Wu, the day we went live, I think we gained like 12,000 followers, so on and so forth. Like it varies, right? But like that is very powerful for you, for a brand with no follower, like zero following that nobody knows. You know how much money you have to spend these days to get that follower or to buy customers so you bypass that right but you cannot build an entire brand or a company just relying on a partnership with your influencer what you have to do is you have to create products that is so good at an amazing price point that makes sense and the brand, the products and the brand has to, to grow its own legs and has to stand on its own. And then the influencer, the celebrity, like that, the glitz and glam of that is just a value add. And also, it's just a kind of like that extra push in the beginning. It'll give you a little bit of that push in the beginning, but you, it's not going to build an entire company just based on the name. Yeah, I see. And what are the biggest mistakes you see people making when it comes to, I guess, working with influencers, whether it's partnering with, with an influencer to create a brand or just using influencers in general to promote your brand? Oh, my gosh. I don't know what the other brands are doing. Like, by, I, I, I'm not like I can't like I'm not an expert enough to uh, answer that answer what other companies are doing wrong. Um, but I think. I think what it is, is you have to, what you have to satisfy, like you're like an agent, you're like your company becomes an agent between the consumer and then the influencer. Right. And then um, of course, you know, as a company, you have what you want to do because obviously you want to run a profitable company. So it's that having like constant conversation and the dialogue with your partner and really treating your influencer partner as your business partner and not just a brand brand name or brand sake, like really like, like going deep dive and treating them as your, your business partner and um, getting them involved in the business as much as possible. Um, so it's no answer to your, your question. <laughs> it's an answer, no answer to your question. <laughs> that's all good. I res- that's fine. I respect your, I respect if you, do, if you, if you, if you don't, if you don't think you can really articulate anything from your experiences and you're sharing your experiences, then that's fine. Um, so look, I'm conscious of your time. This has been awesome, Tony. Um, we're going to move to the rapid fire questions and we'll work towards wrapping up. So um, 
rapid fire questions. Uh, the first one I have, I've got three for you. The first one is, when is work fulfilling? Oh, when I see products on store shelves, period. If you could go back to the first day in your business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? Chill out. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, Elon Musk. I have the biggest crush on him. (laughs) I'm just being honest. (laughs) Awesome. Well, look, uh, we will wrap there, but thank you so much, Tony. Like this is an incredible interview. I really appreciate you just sharing your experiences openly, honestly. Congratulations on all your success. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.